So turn to James chapter 4, and let me do just a little bit of review because we covered an awful lot last week, and I wanted to uh, just kind of go over it. So last week we looked at uh, further characteristics of earthly wisdom, that wisdom that is not from above. And we continue to show how James identified those within the assembly that he was writing to that were not true believers. It's, James is a very interesting book because he's writing to believers that's true. Uh, very, very many of them were Jewish believers. But in the mix, there were those that had not believed and were acting like they had. I know what that's like. When the Taliabo first heard the gospel, uh, there is what uh, missiologists refer to as a people movement, and everybody professed to believe. Um, that's very Asian. They're a collectivist society. Nobody wants to be on the outside looking in. Uh, nobody rides on the public transportation alone. They will wait until a bus comes that's completely filled with people, and then they'll squeeze in with people. They like to be all together. Well, this is in the Middle East, and nobody wanted to be left out, and so some of these people professed to be believers, but they really weren't. And so James is addressing them, even as he's writing to believers. It's very interesting. Now, even though they promoted themselves as such, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, James wrote to help true believers understand where the unrest and disunity in their fellowship was originating. I mean, I can see people that have been Christians for any length of time and gone from one church to another church and, and seen some of what we refer to lovingly as elders, we refer to church stuff that has gone on and they've become disheartened and some don't even want to come back to church. Some have been hurt very badly by problems that go in church. And James in verse 1 says, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Because there are quarrels and conflicts in the church, in the assembly. It, it, this shouldn't be. We are the local church, the body of Jesus Christ. And so James begins then to explain why these quarrels and fightings were taking place. And it was because of the unbelievers in their midst. That's not to say believers can't have a falling out. Paul and Barnabas did. And Barnabas of all people, my gosh. But the truth of the matter is, Paul was addressing both believers and unbelievers in this book. Now, they were experiencing quarrels and conflicts amongst themselves. And, and last week, we looked at James 7 through 10. And we saw James reason with his readers that there were indicators that showed the truth that God's opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. He did that by showing a truly what a truly humble heart looks like, which was James' ways of telling them this is what the disposition of the heart will be in a true believer. And it is just the opposite of the proud heart which God opposes. He did that by listing out ten attitudes of heart which he showed by giving them ten imperatives or commands. Now I want you to understand that these ten imperatives and commands... They're, they're not something that you do to be saved. That's not what Paul is getting at. What he wanted them to understand is that these attitudes of heart 
should be seen in a true believer. Very, very important. So let me read um, verses, just let me start at 7 and go all the way through to the end of the chapter. James told them, submit before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Verse 11. Don't speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, We'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then poof, vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, You boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. What a powerful passage. And, you know, I have in your bulletins probably uh, 11 through 17. That's just a fun way of saying we're going to be here for a while. Does not mean we're going to get to 17 today, believe me. So let's look at those, those commands or those imperatives, those 10 things, as uh, an attitude of heart that you will see in a true believer. Submit, he says. Submit, therefore, to God. In this case, a willful submission, intentional submission of the self is to the rightful authority of the Creator through an obedient response to the gospel of grace, and that shows humility. Submission is the mark of a believer. You cannot be a true believer and live in consistent and constant rebellion against the truths of God's word. If you're finding yourself in that kind of a situation, you need to examine your heart and stop claiming to be a believer because you're not evidencing that humble heart that is submissive. Secondly, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. In obeying James' command to submit to God, they would, in effect, obey his second command here, to resist the devil. To resist is to stand against the devil, to go against his wiles and his temptations, okay? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts and living godly and sensible in this present age, Titus 2. We can now say no to temptation. There's a difference. Prior to our salvation, we did not have the power to resist the devil. So this is a mark of one who has believed. Thirdly, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James' wording here would turn the Jewish audience 
and their mind back to the Old Testament priesthood because under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, it was only a priest that was able to draw near to God in ceremonial sense. Turn real quick to uh, Isaiah chapter 55 with me. It's, it's just some place where every once in a while I'll tell you to turn there rather than me just reading it to you because I'd love for you to go ahead and take your pen out or your pencil and mark it in your Bible. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. I'll read a little bit more, but those are the main verses. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for we, he will abundantly pardon. And he goes on, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. Interesting, we sow. We sow the seed and everything, but it's really God who brings the rain and the sun and makes whatever we sow produce a crop. God is behind it all. And that's why he says at the beginning, seek the Lord while he may be found. There are times in the life of an unbeliever when God is near and he's drawing. And it is at that time that that person needs to turn to God, turn away from his sin and turn to God. And God promises, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Now, this is a direct command to those who are professing to be believers because Nowhere in the Bible do you ever see God referring to one who has believed as a sinner. They're saved sinners. They are not sinners engaged in open, consistent, constant rebellion and sin against God. It really shows that James is calling out to those professing believers in the group who had not yet truly believed to salvation. And it's a reference to the Old Testament priesthood again because a lot of the audience that he was writing to were Jewish. And the Old Testament, they would remember when he says, cleanse your hands, they would think back to the priests and the laver, or laver, excuse me, that was right before uh, the tent of meeting. They had to wash their hands and cleanse their hands before they would bring offering, a sin offering to God. So he's getting to their heart here. And he says, purify your heart, you double-minded. It's just like, that's close to John calling the Pharisees, you vipers, you whited sepulchers. This is strong language. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It wasn't believers he was addressing there. Not, no individual can purify their own heart. The sinner needs a new heart, one that is purified. Psalm 24, 3-4 tells us, Who may stand in the Lord's holy place? Only he who has clean hands and a purified heart. And James identified their situation perfectly when he called them double-minded. That's what a hypocrite is, two-faced. That double-mindedness actually is two-souled. 
And I think I mentioned in the sermon that Bunyan referred to him as Mr. Oh, I can't remember what I said. I'm sorry. Mr. Face Both Ways. Mr. Face Both Ways. It's a character in Pilgrim's Progress. And this is a hypocrite. He's professing to be a believer, but he's causing fighting and quarreling in the fellowship. He's professing to be a believer, but he's not submissive to the creator God. He's professing to be a believer, but he hasn't and isn't resisting the devil. James is calling them out, calling them to salvation. It's evangelistic. And then he says, be miserable, mourn, and weep. Those three kind of form a unit. Be miserable and mourn and weep. And they go together and paint a picture of a person that has come to grips with their state of separation before a holy and righteous God. They know they're separate from God. They know that their eternal destination is hell. And it has leveled them. And this is a good thing because that's the prior work that God does in the heart of one who is about to believe. It's a picture of one who is desperate and in deep need. Mourn. To mourn is to have a heart that is filled with grief and remorse. 2 Corinthians 7 describes this. I now rejoice, Paul says, that you were made sorrowful. What is he, a sadist? No. He knows that God is working in their heart and he had brought them to the end of themselves. That you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Brought to the end of themselves. And you know what? This is addressed, I believe, to unbelievers, but it's also to believers who are holding on to a sin. He will bring you to the end of yourself. He does that. And I'm right there with Paul when he says, I rejoice that he's done that, that he's brought you to the end and made you sorrowful to the point of repentance because then you're back on track. And weeping, weeping and tears are the outward manifestation of those two attitudes of heart, being miserable and mourning. And then he says, let your laughter be turned into mourning. James, like Jeremiah, recognized the need for serious reflection in the matter of sin. We don't do a lot of life reflection. We don't have the time. We're too busy on our devices. Leave your device someplace and go out and take a nice long walk. Just kind of pour out your heart to the Lord in prayer. And then do an evaluation. Examine yourself. How are you doing? (laughs) I really like my thought that I had this morning during our worship that the world's just all false news. So many of us are caught up in the false news. Folks, we need to get back to the truth. We need to understand who we are and how we're doing before the Lord. Lamentation says the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning because a crown has fallen from our head. We have sinned. That's a good thing. When you come to that point where you realize a crown has fallen from your head, that means you're no longer in control, that you've given up. And that is a good thing if you give it up to the Lord. Now, Matthew 5, 3 is the first beatitude, and it summarizes the above attitude of heart that James was describing 
being miserable and mourning and weeping, culminating in your laughter being changed into mourning as being poor in spirit. It's the poor in spirit that will see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, everything that James has just been describing, it's beautiful. The word used in Matthew 5, 3 for poor literally means to shrink back or to cower or to cringe like beggars in the street. It often referred to a person that had faced total destitution, one who had nothing left but rather held out their hand like a beggar to receive assistance from anyone who might give him aid. It also carries the idea of feeling shame for the position of destitution in which they found themselves. In essence, this word poor in Matthew 5.3 means complete bottom. They hit the bottom. Without any resources whatsoever, even the poor widow in Jesus' story, a different word for poor, incidentally, even the poor widow had a meager offering of at least two small copper coins. The word used for poor in that instance is different than the one in 5.3, Matthew 5.3. The word in 5.3 means to be utterly destitute and driven to beggary. Yeah, that's, you've been humbled. The crown's been knocked off your head. You're not flying high anymore. You've lost control and you're calling out to God for help. That's the attitude of heart. Now, don't confuse the material wealth for the spiritual impact that Jesus is preaching about here, being poor in spirit. Because if being materially poor, not having financial wherewithal at all, which is what Jesus meant, how could he command them later in 542 to give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you? It's not material. It's not physical. It's talking about the attitude of heart. God is so much more interested in our hearts, people. That was such a, such a joy to me to understand that as a young believer because I started below zero as an unbeliever. I was saved off the streets of the east side of St. Paul here and I thought I was the only believer in the world. I didn't know any other believers. And when I began to read, and it really hit me when God called David because I read there that God looks on the heart and not on the outward. And I didn't have much going on the outward. But I was sincere in my heart, and I really loved him. And I just yielded myself completely to him. And I was encouraged, because he comes near to those that come near to him. That's, that's very encouraging, people. No matter how low you go, if you reach out, and you're sincere, he'll take your hand. And he'll lead you to himself. This sentiment is not new because even in the Old Testament there are words of the prophets that spoke of this poverty of spirit. In Isaiah 66, 2, it says, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and of a contrite spirit, who trembles at my word. And remember Psalm 51 and its description of the proper view of our own sinfulness. Remember David sinned with Bathsheba, and this is his repentance prayer. He acknowledged that sin deserves judgment. He recognized the need of God's mercy on him. He desired to be cleansed from that sin. He assumed full responsibility for it. Against you and you alone, God, I have sinned, he said. 
You see, it's just you and God in this equation. It, it comes down to you and God. It doesn't matter if your parents brought you to church every Sunday. That doesn't get you into heaven. I read a great meme this week, and I'm going to get flack for this, but it said, if your Christian faith isn't enough to bring you to church every Sunday, I doubt if it's enough to bring you to heaven. Ouch! Oh! Come see me afterwards. That was powerful. I don't know who said it, but I thought, wow. Wow. Simple things, right? But David assumed his full responsibility for his sin, and he realized that sin comes from his very nature. It's our corruption. You see, ever since the garden, every man, woman, and child born into this world is born with an inner corruption called sin. You want to call it original sin, whatever. It's corruption, and it has affected every faculty of our humanity. Our thinking, our feeling, our, our, our ability to act, our behavior, it's all corrupted. But Jesus Christ came to save us from that and to give us a new heart that is pure and righteous and not corrupted so that we can begin to live the way he created us to be after his image. David, again, in Psalm 34, says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and get this, and he saves those who are happy. Thank you, Jesus. No. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. (laughs) You come to the end of yourself. It's as though if it isn't broken, God's not going to fix it. You've got to come to the end of yourself. You've got to be at dead level bottom, realizing there's nothing you can do to save yourself and that you need someone other than yourself to save you. A savior, Jesus. This is one reason Jesus taught about the broad gate. The wide gate is wide. (laughs) It's wide. It's easy. It's broad and open And therefore, many enter through it. But it leads to destruction. I think of the churches in America. There are so many churches in America. And some of them even refer to themselves as evangelical, which should mean that they preach the gospel of God. But so many of them don't. They they basically give you sermons of how to live a better life, how to live your best life now, I think is a book or something. But, you know, they tell you all these things about, you know, how to have a better marriage. I even went down to Saddleback uh, Church once and, and heard sermons on how to have a better sex life. Glory. <sighs> you see, the narrow way is small. It's constrictive. It's difficult. And only few find it but its effects lead to eternal life. That's Jesus' message in his first beatitude about being poor in spirit. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, a person sincerely must see themselves as utterly bankrupt of any capacity to do anything on their own to benefit the kingdom of heaven. And some of those people in James' audience that were reading this book and his writing just weren't there. This is like FM channel and they only have an AM receiver, they weren't getting it. And yet they were professing to be believers. So 
the last of his ten commands is humble yourself and he will exalt you. It's a reflective verse back to verse 6 where he says he gives greater grace. And therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, to the one that hasn't been broken down to that degree, that hasn't given it all up and said, I need you, Christ, in my life. Take it. Make it new. I've ruined it. If you haven't gotten there, he's referring to you as proud and God is opposed to you. (laughs) But he gives grace to the humble. He opens the way to them. And he will exalt you. The humbling is to take place in the presence of the Lord or before the Lord so that he can lift you up. He doesn't leave you there groveling. Okay, verse 11. Don't speak against one another, brethren. I love this. Don't speak against one another. The topic at hand in verses 11 and 12 is the grievous sin of slander. Again, he's not talking to the believers there, although a believer can slander people. But I believe he's, he's chiding the unbelievers in their midst and kind of pulling back the curtain and exposing them. He says, don't slander. The Greek word to speak is distinctly understood to be slander. It's not just talking. It's slandering. And we need to go no further than last week's headlines where a prominent Hollywood star won a court case of defamation. I'm not even going to mention much about it, but I just want to say that they won their court case of defamation. That is the high bar in the legal world because in order to win, you have to prove the statement about you was, number one, false, but you also have to prove that it was made against you with actual malice. That's slander. And yes, our laws actually prevent people from slandering other people. But nobody ever wins those cases. That's why this was amazing. It was also amazing in the fact that it was a woman who had slandered a man, and the man won. That's an amazing fact in today's world. That's a horror of slander. In 1828 edition of Webster's Dictionary, the entry for slander says, it is the false tale or report maliciously uttered and tending to injure the reputation of another by lessening him in the esteem of his fellow citizens and by exposing him to impeachment and punishment or by impairing his means of living. And that's exactly what the defendant said. I'm I'm losing uh, a way to make my life earnings here by, because of this slander. And the jury decided in favor of the plaintiff against the defendant, excuse me, and is now the court hearing between Depp and Heard. No matter what you think or I think about the individuals involved, and I'm surely not promoting either one, it's instructive to hear the verdict of the jury indicating that not only falseness of the statement made against the plaintiff but stressing that they were made with actual malice. There was intent to harm the person that was being spoken against. Slander goes towards a person's character and their personal dignity. The malicious intent is to destroy a person's good name and reputation. 
Proverbs teaches us that a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. I don't know about you. I've been slandered. You can't live a long time and not be slandered by somebody somewhere. But it's doubly difficult when you're in ministry and public ministry at that. And I've been slandered. James goes to the heart of the matter when he brings both the law and the lawgiver with the addition of a warning. Look at what he says there. Don't speak against one another, brethren, because he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. He brings the law in here. And I think, again, because he's talking to uh, Jewish people that are familiar with the Jewish faith, he's, he's telling them, uh, bringing them back to the law. He's really talking about the law of liberty here. Ephesians 4.29, Paul talks to believers about this. He says, don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only such words that are good for building up people according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. At Beacon of Hope, we're cultivating a culture that breaks the pattern of gossip found in so many churches. And I think I've mentioned to you before from the pulpit that when we first started, about every six months I'd give a message, same message, on gossip and slander. Because I had just seen the, the devilishness and the, the, the hurt and the terror that can be caused by slanderous speech. We're building a wall against gossip and slander, but we're also cultivating a culture of positive and encouraging speech to supplant gossip and slander. How many young men in our church, think about this, guys, how many young men need to hear a verbal affirmation that they're doing a good job? I I always stand amazed when, you know, talking to a couple that are having struggles in their marriage When the husband goes to work every single day and sometimes puts in more than eight hours, sometimes puts in more than five days a week, and they're having struggles in their marriage, and not a word is said about his faithfulness to go to work every single day and put up with only he knows. (laughs) Well, she might know too because he may be a complainer. But, you know, uh, a lot of jobs are really difficult, but they go. Why? Because they love their family. They love their family and they want to take care of their family. How many young men just need a pat on the back and say, don't give up, man. (laughs) Plug on. No, it's hard. It'll get better. You'll gain wisdom as you go. You know which way to dodge the bullets, you know, but uh, keep going. How many young mothers will rejoice to hear how nice their children look and how well-behaved they are when they are? That might not be all the time, but when they are, hit it. And encourage them how hard it is to raise children. I just had my three grandkids last night. Oh, that is a young man's game. (laughs) Joseph, good on you, man. Keep going. (laughs) And, you know, little Maddie, she's not all there yet, you know? But she thinks she is. She sees herself completely equal with the other two. I mean, she's got to do everything the other two do, and she can barely toddle, you know. So you got a couple years left, Joe. Don't, don't give up, okay? 
How many older men need to hear how much you appreciate their wisdom? Right? I mean, we can do this stuff, people, to each other, and we will be one happy church. If we just do these simple things like this, how many older women need to hear from you that their advice helped you? You know, older women, a lot of times, they're not going to sit you down and they're not going to go out and have coffee with you for an hour once a week. But they will drop little hints of their wisdom in a conversation in passing. Moms, that you listen to them, or even a dad that you heard them, go back and tell them, thanks. I took that advice. That was really wise. Thank you. And how many of us need a kind word, a word of encouragement, a word of praise, recognition of the services that have been rendered, and someone who knows that you're here? This is a culture that we desire to cultivate here at Beacon. And we will go far in doing so as we're careful with how we speak about others. Do not gossip. Do not slander. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Very practical, right? So, talking about slander, it's character assassination. And usually, it does come out where a person will slander a person right to their face. But typically, it's through social media, or it's through one person telling another person about that person who is not present. And it's geared to rip them down and tear them down, and they have no way of protecting themselves. James goes on to say that speaking against one another, slandering, is to speak against the law. It's to judge the law. Now before we get into just explaining what it means to judge the law and be a judge of the law, I don't want anybody here to think that James' admonition is not to judge. Because in other places of the scripture... Matthew 7, it says, Do not judge that you will not be judged. But if you read the rest of the verse, it says, In the same manner. So if you judge righteously, it's okay to judge. If you judge righteously. What am I talking about? Well, in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, it talks about if you see a brother or a sister sinning, that you're to go to that person and and correct them. Why? Because that's love. If you see a friend about ready to walk off a cliff and you go to him and go, whoa, wait a second, pull back. You're about to take a one step that's going to be detrimental to you. That's love. That's not bad. There's so many ways that we can do this in a kind and loving way, and it's got to be a kind and loving way. And it goes all the way. There's a whole process for one believer to lovingly confront another believer who is in sin. Galatians 6.1 also admonishes believers walking with the Lord to address a fellow believer who may have been caught up or overtaken by a sin. You who are spiritual, correct such a one. Put the bone back into place. Fix and mend the net that is broken. That's what that word means when it says to correct them. As though a believer should never discern that another believer may be committing sin would be the wrong way to take James' words here. David well knew the horror of slanderous tongues when he prayed in Psalm 31, in the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife 
of tongues. John MacArthur, his dad, Jack, prayed every day of his life for protection from the strife of tongues because he knew that he probably would not hear of it until it had already happened. And there's no way of controlling that. So he prayed God to protect him from the strife of tongues. And I love this little phrase here, you store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. I'm sorry I use so many illustrations from Indonesia, but I, my whole adult life was there, basically. I came back after I grew up. And that word shelter is pondok, pondok. And what it refers to in Indonesian is a little, a little kind of lean-to, raised platform lean-to that they put up out in their gardens. It's intimate, man. It's not a great big house. It's a pondok. It's a, it, you're right there with God. He's right there with you. And it, it says that he will protect you and store you in God's pondok, away from the strife of tongues. That's a beautiful thought. It's a beautiful prayer. Strife means contentiousness and disputing and accusing. And it's likened to a sharpened sword or a scourge one receives when punished by whipping. And a problem comes when these slanderous words are told others and not to the one whom they indict. This is speaking against the law, which means the perfect law, the royal law, the uh, the law of love. And actually, it's what we're to be known by, our love for one another. So how contrary is to a Christian Slandering another is a violation against the law of love, and therefore James reasons that the slanderer is actually putting themselves above the law and now stand over the law as a judge. The rampant spread of individual autonomy in our culture displays this incredible and unimaginable implication daily. Those who disregard the law of God, in essence, are placing themselves over it. But there's more. Okay, it's not only that they're judging their brother and they're judging the law and standing over the top of that. God's opposed to the proud because he says there's only one lawgiver and judge, verse 12. Look at what he says in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? <laughs> I don't know, you know, Paul, I'd like to meet. Now, he's, he can be pretty, pretty tough. His words can be really cutting, right? But I'd like to meet him because he is a pioneer church planner. And I planted a church in a pioneer setting, and I love Paul. I love the way he planted churches and the way he encouraged churches and so forth. James, a little bit afraid of James. James, this, this study in James is kind of giving me pause here. I think I'd like to meet him in a group. And I want to be the one way in back. Of course, when I meet him, I'll be in heaven and everything's good, so it'll probably be okay. But I'm telling you, I'm, I'm looking at his words here, and he's so strong. But this is how much he cared for those people. And the assembly that were infiltrated with professing believers that weren't really true believers. He says, you're not only placing yourself above the law, the slanderer is also attempting to place himself above or over the only one who's able to save and destroy. 
So this is very serious. Slander with your, with your mouth, you don't want to be doing that. The pride of man is enmity toward God. And, and, and this is so close to the passage in Isaiah 14, where the devil attempted to surpass his creator by emphasizing his will over the will of God five times. Five times the devil said, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And God threw him out of heaven. (laughs) Reminds me of the Bible teacher that was interned by the communists, Chinese communists in World War II and taken to the Philippines and he faced terrible torture and struggles there and he told us about their attitude towards the Philippine or towards the Chinese uh, torturers. He said, we entrusted our souls to God because God is able to squash them like a bug. And the fact that he didn't squash them like a bug meant that he allowed this to happen to us for a purpose. We may not understand, but he's God and I'm man. And I'm going to let my words be few on earth. Wow. Great, great talks. And this one says, I will, five times. This is the same as somebody who is slandering because they're placing themselves not only over the brother they're slandering, not only over the law, but over the lawgiver. And it says, he's the only one that's able to save and destroy. Oh, here James goes again. He's going to give us some really good words to feel good about here. Let's look at the bad news first, okay? God is able to destroy. What? That's not my picture of God. Well, it should be because he is able to destroy. It says so right here in the Bible. The word used for destroy, though, here, does not mean annihilate. And some who believe in annihilation, who do not believe in hell, Say, well, God destroys. So when you die, if you're not a believer, he destroys you. You're nothing. I'm sorry, you can't find that in the scripture. Someday I'll teach on hell and heaven, but not today. The Greek term for destroy means to bring someone into eternal damnation in hell. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 10, 28, where he warned the people, don't fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. So that's everybody. Right? Any human being. They can kill the body, but the soul is immortal. He says, but rather fear him who is able to destroy, same word, both soul and body in hell. Like I said, James, not talking the sweet, serpy stuff that you might expect. He also spoke of hell being a place prepared for the devil, Jesus did. And his angels. In Matthew 25, just jot this down. I'm not going to turn there for time's sake. But in Matthew 25, verse 41, he says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. He did not prepare it for mankind. But men who persist in rejecting him and not believing what he offers to them, the free gift of salvation, will find themselves in hell according to verse 46. So you'll see that in Matthew 25, 41, and verse 46. Now, the good news. 
And this is good news. And I purposely saved it for last. (laughs) The same one who's able to destroy is also able to save. He's able to save. We sing a song like that, I think. Able to, yeah. I'm not a good singer, so I'm not going to do it. To everyone and anyone who place their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus is able to save his people from their sins. Jesus himself said the reason he came to the earth was to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his whole mission. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I read that this morning. God is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So when you believe, you've just lawyered up. You have an advocate, a lawyer, Jesus Christ, who goes before the Father and advocates for you. Non-stop, day in, day out, forever and ever, saying, I paid for their sin. I paid for their sin. And that's why we read Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're free, man. We're free forever and ever. And we have begun to live our eternal life with our union in Christ. He always lives to make intercession for us. What a wonderful way to end our time today, hearing that God, through Jesus, is able to forgive us for all of our sins and bring us into his presence, where he'll dwell, we'll dwell with him forever and ever. Will you be with him in heaven? You young ones that have been listening to me and not just drawing pictures, you're actually listening. Are you going to be with Jesus in heaven forever and ever? You need to ask yourself that. If you're able to listen to me right now and this question, you need to ask yourself that. And if you want to understand more about it, ask your mom or dad or come and talk to me. Because you, you have to believe that God is. He exists. And that he is a rewarder of who? Of those who seek him. The Bible just kind of just overlaps itself all the time. Sometimes I feel like I'm just repeating myself all the time, but I'm all over the Bible. I'm in the Old Testament, I'm in the New Testament, I'm in the Epistles, I'm in Revelation, and, and it just says the same thing over and over again. And the good news is that if you repent and turn from your sin, he will forgive you for all of it, and you'll never have to look back. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful For the fact that you sent Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, someone other than ourselves who will work on our behalf to save us by dying on that cross, but also throughout eternity advocating for us with the Father. That he bore the punishment for the sin that we incurred, that we have committed. And we don't need to bear that punishment or any condemnation anymore. And for that, we are grateful, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name.